Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all the kinds. All the kinds. If you're anything like me, which I'm sure you are, you've often wondered to yourself, what is business all about? Mm. Is it about profit? Is it about serving people? Or, as the commercial says, why not both? Another question we can ask is, why is there to believe? And I've, I've honestly always asked myself this question. Why is there this belief that if you are profitable then you cannot be people-focused or even people-concerned. Why is this their sense that if I'm concerned about profit, it needs to come at the expense of my concern about people? Mm. When companies have this kind of philosophy, it's going to be inevitable that it's going to seep into every aspect of the workplace culture. And ultimately, it's going to create a situation in which people are not only disconnected from the organization that's creating this sense, but ultimately, they're going to be disconnected from one another as employees and as coworkers. Studying sociology, we find out that one of the things early sociologists were concerned about and explored deeply is the way that people become disconnected from one another in modern industrial society. The bonds that used to tie us together in traditional societies and agrarian societies become severed when they move to this new kind of environment. Entering into this new modern environment of cities, of industrial work, we also enter into these relationships with one another that are, in the end, purely transactional. We work because we are paid to work, which on one hand makes sense, but on the other hand, it shows that we're not doing this because we believe in what we're doing or that we're supporting one another. We're doing it because someone is giving us a wage for it. And as was said in the movie Office Space, that will make you work just hard enough not to get fired. So mm -hmm. the question becomes, how do we create this new kind of workplace, this new kind of workplace culture or this new kind of employee experience that will facilitate connections in workplaces? Now, not only do these connections make us feel better, but they also make us work better. And how can we think about leadership and management as pathways through which this can happen. For instance, rather than calling people managers, maybe, just maybe, we need to think of their role as being facilitators. I've often talked about this. If you call people managers, they will manage. If you call them facilitators, they might facilitate. They might help people achieve better outcomes versus threatening them to do better. Ultimately, to sum it up, maybe, maybe by taking this point of view, we might in the end make work more human. Yeah, it, it has me reflecting on that, that funny point that, you know, both educational institutions and school and the work themselves, right, are premised on an old school model of factory labor, you know, and so it's like the leaders Absolutely. manage. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, right, a funny point in history now that we are beginning to ask these questions on a broader scale and and ultimately how do we make these these systems more human uh and and to help us think about this we have a great guest to open our ears and eyes a little bit and so here in the experience by design studio we're excited to welcome tony martinetti and tony is a leadership coach and consultant specializes in helping leaders and teams navigate change and the, the important thing here is that whether we're thinking about them as facilitators or managers we do need to ask questions about what it means to lead and what it means to work in groups. And one of the things that Tony helps us see is that leadership is really all about navigating this interface between the oneself and, and others. And so we're going to break this down by diving into strategies around notions of being authentic or authenticity at work, uh, the needs around feeling safe to express oneself, both as a leader, but then also as, as followers too. And how do we overcome challenges such as prioritizing collective leadership? So this, I think, is where the idea of, of um, uh, what would you just say? <laughs> With the, we'll, we'll make myself, I'll say this better. We also dive into strategies around being authentic at work and what it means to bring one's kind of whole self to the uh, office place. The need to express our, ourselves in an area that feels safe or how do we feel safe expressing ourselves as well as how do we overcome this challenge of 
uh, needing to prioritize really the collective leadership over individualism. And I think that's where this important point you're making between managers and facilitators comes into the fore. So there's a ton of great stuff in here. We can't wait to get to it with you. Uh, let's dive on in. I was looking at your your website, which is very nice, by the way. And I, whenever I look at someone's website, I get website envy. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, this is why no one's calling. My website's not as nice as this. But I was noticing you're your child, your child of immigrants. Like, I'm kind of interested in that for a variety of reasons. Like, where where's the origin story of the Martinettis? Yeah, well, my dad's from Italy. Yeah, okay. I'm from Avellino, and my mother is from Lebanon. Get out. Yeah. So are my ancestors from Lebanon. Yeah. yeah. I don't know exactly what it's like, not exactly Beirut, um, but it's somewhere near like the city center. So, gotcha. And when did your mom come over? Um, gosh. Um, it was her family came over. It was like the early sixties. Um, so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's reasonably very interested in this is number, number one, because my family's Arab American. My grandmother's family is from Lebanon. My grandfather's family is from Syria, although it was all greater Syria at the time. But, you know, being a child of immigrants, especially certain kinds of immigrants, can carry a certain obligation in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of uh, success, in terms of expectations that parents and families have on you or on one to achieve in certain kind of ways. And I was curious as you started your own business, if there was any connection between that element of yourself and your activities as an entrepreneur and as a business person? Um, not at first, but eventually. Uh, so here's the thing that really started for me. I, I grew up in and around my dad's business and my mother actually worked in my dad's business as well. We, um, we had an alarm company, um, okay. which is uh, my dad, his first job here was as an electrician and working in an alarm company. And then he started his own company. And then um, I worked with my dad. Uh, that's what I did when I was a little kid. And even, you know, early child labor was was doing anything I could um, to help the family business. My mother did the, the bookkeeping and the kind of general management of the business. And my dad, all of the relationships and the, you know, understanding of how things got done. But it was all about working harder. Um, and the yeah. element of like hard work is what makes the, the work done. It makes you get ahead and also about relationships first. Um, and so, uh, funny thing that I, I didn't know I'd be an entrepreneur until I went through the journey of working inside of companies for a number of years, 25 years, and then found myself becoming an entrepreneur by, by default. Um, and I'll just say one last thing about this, yeah. which is that my, my dad also, um, on the side, because of course you need a side gig. Of course. Um, he had his, his business and then he had a business of, of building buildings. Um, so he had a construction business and on I, the side, on the side. Yeah. Sure. Every, every house I lived in from when I was a little kid, um, was built by my family. Wow. Um, including, you know, I actually had a hand in, in building, build, buildings in our houses along the way. We built a total of seven different houses in my life and um, three commercial buildings. That's amazing. I think that might be the record for number of houses someone has lived in that they built. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, to me, it was also really, you know, kind of rewarding to be able to know that I learned from my dad how to like do electrical wiring, to do plumbing, to do, you know, all these different things that didn't work, then it was my fault. <laughs> so yeah, it's fun. That's no. interesting because, I mean, I, I did my dissertation research around immigrant entrepreneurship in Detroit with a lot of um, Arab American entrepreneurs. And it was always interesting, the number of people who went from having corporate gigs in the auto industry or wherever, but for a variety of reasons, it just wasn't sitting with them to be working for someone else. And there was this impetus, whether cultural, historically, you know, going back to the Phoenicians that they would often talk about, or if it was cultural in a contemporary sense, as this is what immigrants do is we, we like to work for ourselves, that they would end up opening up some kind of business that might've been adjacent to their training as an engineer or even something like a restaurant completely separate from it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Uh, and now I, I think about the work I'm doing now. It's very different than uh, than anything that I would have imagined. You know, the only thing that connects back to those early days is is people, right, mm-hmm. and relationships, um, but nothing else. <laughs> I mean, I guess one thing I'm thinking about there too, as uh, as a nerdy anthropologist, that one of the the things that I always found really really um, intriguing about questions of place is how oftentimes the relationships that we have with others like can be sort of infused through place. Like we have memories that are in a building. So I mean, even you saying you have seven houses that you built to, um, I mean, no doubt there's there's a ton of memories infused in the in those spaces. So I'm actually just uh, maybe we can we can like press on that point for a second and just get your your thought, both kind of working in, in kind of coaching in the space is like, I love this idea that's about relationships. Um, I mean, do you see like place spilling into when you, when you think about and working with people's around relationships, you know, how do we see things like that? Like the physical kind of come into those conversations? Yeah. Um, there's an element of, if I understand you correctly, maybe, you know, correct me if I'm, I'm not reacting to this in the right way, but there's a sense of like, when we build something and we have a connection to, um, to the things that, you know, we've seen it from the ground up, mm. um, there's a feeling of connection to not just the physicality of it all, but the sense of like, um, uh, wanting to see it, um, transform and mm. move in the right direction. And as people come into the space, you want to, you want them to know, you know, where things have come from. For example, mm-hmm. knowing that, Hey, this is, this was nothing before, you know, before we showed up here, this was created out of nothing. And we've created this, this structure, this place and all the people in it has come from a legacy that we've created. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote an article about this a while back, how like important it is that to, to you create a, um, the buildings in the world that have created a legacy. And mm. when you, it's fascinating when you look back at, you know, the structures of the pyramids and the, you know, the different places that you, we always like look at and say, they've lasted the, the span of time. And mm. those places have really um, cemented themselves in our history. And they remind us of where we come from. Mm. Yeah, and, no, that's right on. I think that's great. Um, yeah, no different than what I'm thinking about right now is a sense of yeah. like connection to where we've all come from. Mm. Yeah, totally. I think there's there's I think there's a huge power in that, and I think it's um, I like I like how you said this idea that um, you know the connections that we're building, especially from the ground up, like really bring out in us this feeling of investment and watching it transform and grow over time. And the, and the legacy of it too, I think is really interesting. So I guess, I mean, maybe that's, that's a nice kind of like way to plug in also to, to your work now. Um, like how do you approach the idea of, of kind of transformative coaching and kind of personal relationship building? Is it, is it also a similar idea in terms of um, we're building investments in people and then helping them yeah. expand into the ether? I love this. You know, I, you guys have created a space that is really powerful because it's not just your typical conversation here. You know, when I think about um, what we're creating in coaching and, and in these conversations that I have is I'm, I'm always thinking about it as that we're not just starting from, from scratch. We're not just starting from a place of, okay, where do you want to go? Um, you have to um, really honor. And what I often say is like you transcend and include the past. So mm-hmm. I want to unearth and honor the past. And realize that there's a lot of things in the past that some people want to run away from, but we can't. We have to say, what is it about what brought you here that you want to appreciate and, um, and bring into the future? Um, and I think that's where my coaching is really, um, is grounded in is a sense of like, how do we look back so we can look forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. so that people are, are really seeing what brought them here in the first place. And how they want to use that as fuel to the future. One of the things I re- another thing I really liked about your website is that you seem to have been your first client um, in your own coaching. Yeah, uh, and and I've been thinking, you know, as Adam was talking, as you were talking, and thinking about this notion of legacy. And I just jotted down something. I don't know if it makes any sense. Legacy is about that which we are told and choose to remember, as well as the impacts that we may as we, that we may not see, as well as the impacts that we may not see. If I can say that in English, so it's like two parts, right? One of the things that I I might be reading too much into it, but you said that 
you know, it's all about working harder because working harder allows you to get ahead. But in looking at your own description about yourself, the idea of working harder to get ahead led to burnout and depression, which was also part of your legacy, right? I mean, it's about the place where you were from. It's what immigrants do. It's the ethos. And, and often I'm not projecting onto your family situation, just speaking more in general, immigrants aren't typically about self-discovery. It's about what do I got to do today in order to get ahead and to become successful? And how much of what you are doing is about both honoring legacy, but also overcoming legacy that you were taught as a result of the experiences of, of, of immigration. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I love where you're going, where you're going with this because you know, like you said, I was the, my first uh, client and I had to break the patterns that I was stuck in, but also in a sense, really, you know, appreciate that you're standing on the shoulders of these giants, these people right. who have created everything that got us to this point. But if we just stay in this, well, it's working, we should just continue to to stay on this path. Well, you know, change the world outside of the environment is, is changing. We can't not change our insides. Um, and that is, goes for everybody. You know, if we continue to apply the same model of thinking and expect the same results, we're not going to because the world keeps on changing. And that's what I experienced for myself. And that's what ended up being the model that I create for others is that we have to break our patterns so that we can get different results. Um, and, and create a life that is more fulfilling and more um, meaningful. And that's why I often say sometimes, uh, that inspiration through honest conversation, the, the honest conversation you have is the first conversation is with you. What mm-hmm. am I, um, who am I really being? And who do I really want to be? Um, and what do I really want to stand for? And I think that's the starting point of, of the new journey that you want to create. It's interesting, like one of the, um, to add, add, add a lens onto this, that one of the, the big challenges that we see with the, uh, I don't want to make social media the bad guy, but just like the rise of the rise of a lot of social media and, and with, especially with Gen Z, um, students is that there's, there's high levels of kind of social anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. kind of depression and, and even, I mean, notions of hopelessness we've seen in the kind of pure research. Um, and it's this interesting kind of paradox, one that, uh, the, the, the idea that we're spending a lot of time supposedly focusing on ourselves by, you know, talking about the adventures that we're going on or whatever it is, you know, and, and kind of, you know, saying, this is me doing my adventures, you know, and then the other side that there is this, um, rise, not of connectivity, but of narcissism as part of that, right? Cause there's, there's kind of an unreflexiveness of, of being, you know, looking only at me, but then obviously the, the idea of how that gets reflected back at us through certain digital platforms can actually cause more anxiety. And so, I'm curious as we think about this point, I, th- I think that's such a powerful idea for us to say, how do I start with me and ask the actual questions that would get me somewhere to change versus, um, but I am, I spend all the time thinking about my, you know, myself yeah. on Instagram. It's always you know, about me. Expressing, <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. How do we make it about you without making it about you, I guess, is an interesting question, right? Like ask those actual questions versus getting stuck on the, I'm excited because it's me, you know? Yeah. Adam, I love what you're sharing because if, you know, what's, what it's bringing up in me is a sense of like, we are always putting out this face, this mask of like how we need to put out our best selves online or best selves into the world. And um, that's not always helpful for us to tri- to be able to develop ourselves. In order mm. to truly develop ourselves, we need to be able to understand who we are on the inside. And that requires us to think, well, what's really going on so that I can then take that inside world and unearth it and bring it to the surface. Um, mm. If you're only focused on the external, what you look at, look like on the outside and what you're portraying on the outside, then what happens is you're starting to lose connection to who you truly are. You're mm. only focusing on the surface. And so I think that inner journey, the ability to really get aware of, well, what do I want to, you know, who am I really? And who do I really want to be? And how am I creating some different personas within myself that might not be serving me right now in this moment? Mm-hmm. And that's why people often talk about that vulnerability of being yourself. Well, you first have to be vulnerable internally before you can start to show that outside. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it's interesting. I keep going back to this because I'm kind of, I guess, thinking about the own re- my own research, my own personal journey. You know, you're talking about Italy and Lebanon, which are two to use the parlance of anthropology and sociology for collective cultures, and especially immigrant. There's not a lot of focus on self-actualization and the I, right? I mean, it's just, you know, when I was working with students back in Detroit, where I'm from, as I'm wearing my Detroit shirt right now, yeah, you know, they would often say, I want to do X or Y, but I can't because my family is here, or I can't do this because of my family, or I have to think about my, and by family, I'm in the extended family. It was all about the yeah. larger collective cohort. And it's interesting to hear, listen to you talk in this more, you know, um, individual oriented, self-actualized mindset coming mm-hmm. from, a, I'm guessing what would be a household that was dominated by collective cultural orientations. Yeah. And I think this is where, uh, again, it's breaking a pattern, but it's also um, honoring and and uh, kind of right. thinking differently about this. So I don't want you to think that I'm some self-centered person. You know, I want people to honor themselves first and then move into the collective. Because if you're connected with who you are, if you have that self-awareness and the self-leadership about how right. you're showing up as a person, then what happens is then you can contribute more fully and more um, authentically, which I know authentically right. is, is kind of like mm-hmm. an overdone word, but more real in, in the space of a collective. If you show up into a collective and you're just trying to put on, again, facades or you know, what do they think I should be? How do I think I should show up? Then what happens is it's you're actually not doing service to the collective, right? Right. Uh, and so the what I will often try to help people to do is to really get clear about who I am, who do I want to be, and how do I want to show up so that I can bring myself fully into that room and connect with the collective in a more real and authentic way. I, th- I think that's fair because so much of the, I mean, at least what I've seen, the collective orientation might be performative or out of obligation, but not necessarily fully embraced, right? And and I do uh, work in a number of recovery programs. And the one phrase that we often stress is, let it begin with me, right? Yes. That mm-hmm. if it doesn't begin with me, then I can't bring my best self to help anybody else. First, I have to help myself before I can be in any position to help anyone else. And if I worry about everyone else before me, I'm not going to do as well as I can by them. And I'm certainly not going to do as well as I can by me. Yeah. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, there's been this a lot of talk about, um, you know, how quiet leaders or quiet people, they are actually really good in, um, in collectives. Because of the fact that they're great at listening and mm-hmm. listening to other people and also they're introspective often. And I'm, I'm stereotyping in some sense, but I'm, I'm saying it because there's an ability to be able to listen well right. to what's going on in the collective, but also being in tune with yourself then allows you to contribute more meaningfully in a right. room. Um, hmm. Makes sense based yeah. on what you just shared. If all you're doing is talking and not listening, then what happens is it becomes more of an ego stroke. It becomes more about um, words per minute and how loud can I be and less about how am I connecting and how am I um, becoming part of this room? Hmm. And and it seems like there's a big piece of that too is... Uh, I guess being present, right? In in terms of if I'm always yeah. trying to think of what's the next thing I should be saying or should be doing, then I'm I'm either I'm living in the past or the future, right? It's like I'm I'm trying to to like chess game my way to this 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 you know whatever whatever I'm trying to I'm trying to win here. And it's something that that um, this is slightly different, but um, the uh, a scholar thinker who I really respect, um, Shepard Siegel, that does a lot of work on. Um, tricksters in play and and one of the the areas about this and the need for kind of tricksters in in the modern world because we have i mean the the bigger picture is that drawing from Jungian archetypes that we there's too much warrior um and not enough uh trickster and not enough um there's, there's a bit of mother tossed in there too but the idea about trickster in this case one of the things that like inspired his thinking was when we think about the idea of originary play uh from with kids uh, it's that like the kind of play that kids do is like there's no there's no winning or losing it's the idea is to play for play's sake um you know and then we like later get into these 
these ideas of like winning for dominance, right? And there's kind of this more colonialist form of playing um, that we mostly do. And it's interestingly enough, that's called cultural play. So I'm actually reflecting this in terms of how um, we've been having a conversation a bit about the, the immigrant question and like, but, but just thinking about culturally, yeah. Uh, how am I showing up in a space? Right. And so play is another way that this, this kind of comes out as I'm thinking about this. Um, what kind of play are we doing? Are we just there to play or are there, are we there to win and like how that can make us show up entirely differently? How we, how we, how we approach that. Right. Yeah. I mean, Adam, when you, you know, what you just kind of explained is exactly how this conversation plays out. Right. It's, mm. it's a play. It's a conversation that is play. It's not about, um, you know, who has the best idea. It's about how can we, you know, advance the idea as a collective, as opposed to, you know, any one person being the champion of the day. And I think that's the the beauty of what we're modeling and also what we need to see more of in workplaces where um, it's not about any one person having to feel like they have to have the best idea to win, but instead it's about let's hear ideas. Let's hear mm. what people think. Um, and when people don't feel um, like they are um, on display or they feel like they're um, under the microscope, instead it feels more like play. Mm. Right. Mm. It, you know, just to, just to throw the boomers under the bus for a second, because <laughs> I always like to take a good opportunity to do that as a person who's generation X and claims to be early generation X. I sometimes he sounds like a late millennial to me, but will Ladum be unknown unknown? Yes. It's questionable. <laughs> But, you know, one of the words you just said, Tony, was that you, you reintroduced this idea of collective, right? And one of the criticisms of the boomers and why we're in the situation, sorry, boomers, is that there was so much me and not enough we. That, like, that moment in, in history in this country was about, you know, finding oneself. And mm-hmm. if, we, if we're all about finding oneself with not as a destination and not as a step towards finding oneself so that we can work better together. You know, that, yeah. that next thing, which is, yeah, don't, just don't stop there. Cause if all you do is care about yourself, then we're in the situation where everyone is worried about themselves and no one was worried about the other. We stay mm-hmm. in me and we never move to we. And so yeah. as I, as I hear you talk and kind of honoring the legacy while also extending it by focusing on the work that one needs to do on oneself so that one can be better for the we. It's an interesting kind of linkage between just stopping at the me, as Adam was talking about narcissism and social media, and becoming a better me so we can create a better we. I love it's just like my my mind just exploded. So uh, in a good way, I hope. In a, yeah. Not like scanners. I like the movie scanners where like the guy's head yeah. explodes and it's kind of gross. Well, I mean, I was just at a conference a few weeks ago um, with a bunch of HR professionals really, you know, talking about, you know, managing the different generations in the workplace and how challenging it is. But also, you know, I, I reflected back the sense that it's an, um, often the obstacles are opportunities, right? And here we have a chance to learn from all these generations. But what you just said that got me thinking a lot um, is this idea that like, yeah, we've gone through, it's like a cycle of of expand and then um, narrow, expanded, then narrow, expanded, then narrow. But the, you know, the, what's cool about that is we're learning from the past generation. Then we take that, we integrate it. And then we can, you know, the next generation takes that and, and runs from there. The key thing that I think we need to be mindful of is worrying about if the future generations learn the right lessons from the past generations and don't retreat mm. into right. a me me first and me always um, mentality, but instead keep the collective in mind so that it's not just about the, um, just about me and me only. Right. But we keep the me and the we in mind always, because as you described, and hopefully I'm going to, you know, kind of connect to the dots here, the sense that like, we have to be thinking not just collective. We have to be thinking, how do I contribute to the collective and then also bring the collective back in. Yeah. One might call it a dialectic, right? Yin and yang. Like it's like, you know, two parts of the, of the same thing. But if you divorce yeah. either of them from each other, then you're left with uh, an incomplete whole, right? And, and yeah. the idea about holism is about having these unified elements that are able to live together in like a symbiotic nature. And that's a lot of big words. I wasn't expecting to use that many big words in that sentence. <laughs> and as it started, I just couldn't stop it. 
There you mm. go. Right. We've, we've reached the quota of. Yeah. That's, that's all I got. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. There's a, there's so many, what is it? The, when, when I first started podcasting, actually, um, we, we had a theory swear jar that was like, if you use too many high, highfalutin words, right. You gotta put a quarter in the, in the jar. Um, we never paid though, but you know, but it was, it was a nice idea. I think. Well, Adam said young and I couldn't let that stand. That's true. That is a uh, started it. You started it. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah see, right. <laughs> what have we done here? We, we, we devolved now. Um, right. But I think, I think there's such a, such an important point that you're both bringing up here that it's how do we, how do we cultivate the, the we in the midst of the me, right? Especially when there's a lot of pressure to, to still also be the me. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make that's my shortest question. I want to, I want to hear your thoughts about this, Tony. And, and how do we make sure we're cultivating that we in the midst, in the midst of the me today? Well, this is great because um, I just came off of um, uh, about a month ago. I was um, I did a TED talk, and mm, the cool. TED talk was geared towards a sense of how to create better connections in the workplace. It was like it was titled "Don't Check Yourself at the Door." Um, <laughs> I wanted to really riff on the on the BC boys. Uh, don't you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. But right, I, you know, Gen um, X again, going with the Gen X reference. I like <laughs> there it. You go. <laughs> Um, but the reality is that, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people in the workplace are holding back aspects of who they are because they're afraid of what that might do um, and what people might think. And so they hold themselves in a box like I did for most of my career. I spent a lot of time thinking I was one thing and I had to be that thing um, until I let go of being in that box. And so in this talk and generally my thought around this is this idea that we need to get curious about what it is that is unique about us that we're willing to share and bring into the workplace or bring into the different circles that we're part of and, um, and bring it in a humble and really meaningful way mm-hmm. that will open the circle um, and create connection. Um, the, the two companies that I think about who have done this really well, and they're, you know, kind of iconic companies, but Patagonia and mm-hmm. Microsoft, you know, Patagonia for the reason that they want to know what people do outside of work. They want to know what are their hobbies, what are their interests, and how can we champion and celebrate them? And I think when you do get to know people in a holistic way, um, then what happens is they bring more of themselves into the workplace, right? Mm. And you, um, you also build trust. So uh, I know I'm probably going off on a huge tangent here, but hopefully it's it's helpful in the sense that um, the more we share of ourselves, the more we feel connected to others. Hmm. And it also expands the circle to bring other people into the room to share more of themselves. Yeah. Hmm. No, I think that that's a, I think it's a really powerful point, uh, you know, because it highlights the, the fact that when I feel safe sharing something that matters to me about about me, not in a narcissistic sense, but just like, it really matters to me that I'm, I'm able to, to, I don't know, sing at home or that I want I like to, I like to, I don't know, draw or something, whatever it is, yeah. you know, it's like, um, if I don't feel like I'm going to be judged for that, then you see that the light in people's eyes when they're talking about that thing that yeah. like makes them, them, you know, um, exactly. and it's crazy to think about that, uh, for so many of our work-life experiences, you know, myself included, right. How often we don't do that or feel like that's not celebrated or reactively denied doing that. Right. Um, yeah. it is crazy that we spend, you know, I don't know, uh, not small percentage of our time in, in the work environment as adults. And, uh, and, and we don't have a lot of self, uh, that we can often bring in a, in a typical sense. Like we, you can say, here's two companies doing it well, and that's two, right. I mean, there's more than yeah. that, but like, that's not, that's not a lot, you know, as you think about it. And that, that's a, that's kind of crazy when you think about that, you know, um, we're making a strange world out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we, you know, when companies start to realize that it's not just about, well, that's nice, but what is the big deal? You know, what what is it going to do for me in the in the long run? Well, first of all, when people feel like they're part of the culture and people feel connected and they feel that trust, the results are huge. You're, you're more mm. innovative. You've got employee engagement goes to the roof. Um, people are not more apt. They're not apt to leave because they now feel like there's not just like a, a this is a place I work. It feels like a, it feels like a community. Um, mm. So there's a lot of benefits. I won't go into them here, but the reality is that there is a huge bottom line benefit um, to treating people this way. Mm. One of the things I've joked about with my students, cause I, one of the things I talk about in my classes and when I try to do speaking is building workplace communities. 
and the idea about bringing an authentic self to the workplace. And I'll, I'll joke that, you know, we want you to bring your authentic self to the workplace, but do you have another one? Because the one you're bringing is just, uh, we just like you to switch it up a little bit. So if you have any other authentic selves that you can try out, it might, might work better for everybody. Yeah. That's awesome. I love but, it. Yeah. But you know, this, there is, you know, you talk about business as example, there is a, a community development example that I use, hmm. um, called assets based community development, where rather than looking at communities as uh, a, a assembly of needs, or deficits mm-hmm. that we look at the assets that exist already within that community. And we inventory those assets, what people's interests are, what their skills, what their competencies, what their capabilities are. And we use that material as the foundation, as like almost like the Legos to build the community from the inside out. And it's very much what you're kind of describing here with Patagonia or Microsoft, which is, you know, who are you? What do you bring? I, I talk about the fact that, you know, nothing's worse to a person than having a gift that they are giving to someone else rejected. Mm. And when that gift is of yourself, it's even worse. Yeah, I hear that 100%. And, you know, it's also, you know, there's a sense of, of realizing, you know, the, uh, the aspirations too, right. That you, that you want. Exactly. You start to say, here's what I'm bringing to the table, but also kind of pointing out, you know, the, the, there are some other things that I want to develop and there's right. some that I really want to work on. And I'm hoping to be able to have the opportunity to learn from someone who really is good at that. So when you can be able to match people in that regard, that's even more magical, right? It could even be just something to the extent of, and this is about making community, right? You know, person over here wants to learn how to play guitar. Person over there knows how to play guitar. Yeah. And they work in the same organization. Let's connect you. Well, well, how does that help the company? Well, playing guitar might not help the company, but now you actually have cross-functional, uh, cross-divisional communication and relationships being developed that might be useful in some other capacity. So rather than just being, you know, trans- transactional, that we only want to do these things that benefits the company, refocus that we want to do things that benefit employees and yeah. out of which we can derive benefit for the company. Yeah. You can see those two people who are working together to, uh, you know, to collaborate on learning guitar, but also going to bat for each other and right. setting up for each other when they need it. Okay, I'm having this challenge. Can you help me out with this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know each other. We're, you know, we're working together and hey, I owe you a favor. Right. It's it is powerful stuff. Yep. Yeah. Before it's like they're strangers. And also it's like the 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 transactional nature that we tend to have in, in the workplace, you know, or as, as that we frame business, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we, that's enabled uh, a scale of business that we can kind of get bigger and, and do, you know, business in wider contexts. But, uh, you know, being as a human being, if you are ever treated transactionally, it doesn't feel good. Right. You know, and so it's like, we, we can't have the same necessary bottom line attitude in a business as in fourth tree people. And like, you know, most organizations don't do that, thankfully, but just, you know, it's, but it's there. Right. And we don't always talk about that. This, this idea of, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of heard these ideas of like, you know, bring your whole self to work. Um, and these ideas are celebrated, um, when they're implemented well, but I think also, you know, Gary's that the, the point is like good. Cause it's simple, but you know, knowing your coworkers, <laughs> Oh, yeah, he plays yeah. guitar. Cool. I, 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 I want to learn that, you know, and like whatever it is, um, these, these small moments, you know, are, are actually quite nice. And then you realize that, I mean, as, as weird as this will sound, like you then recognize the human, um, not that you necessarily didn't before, but you, you recognize more humanity, I suppose. Um, when it's like, Oh yeah, we, we both love dogs, whatever it is, you know, and, and that matters, uh, to cultivate that, that kind of space. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, I'm, I'm encouraged to see, cause like, this is an interesting reflection, uh, you know, in we're recording this in, you know, mid 2023 and then like, you know, for the past few, I mean, I guess year and a half, there's been that, you know, quote unquote, great resignation, um, or really kind of great reassignment or people kind of shifting their work priorities. Those that have the privilege to do so based on trying to find work that, that feels more meaningful to them, you know, on some level, because we have different kinds of threats in our, in our, in our lives, right. Obviously COVID-19 and, um, and things that can come with that. And so there's this interesting question too, that, uh, one of the responses we see with people is, is this of like, I both needed a more sense of purpose, but then part of that is feeling connected to a community, right? Like just being yeah. and understanding your role in a community goes a sh- huge way. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of of having a sense of belonging and purpose isn't through your work. So I think it's it's I'm encouraged to see that this has happened like on a broader scale. But I, I hope that we can kind of keep pushing that that uh, envelope line. One of the metaphors, pushing something forward. You know, there. Yeah, I mean, Adam, this is I love that you mentioned this because I think this is exactly what I'm really all about. Um, and this conversation is really about is how can we you know, by sharing more of who we are, opening up ourselves with that, you know, few brave moments of courage, then we can potentially find that we can find our tribe, our places where we do belong, the communities mm-hmm. that make us feel part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, you know, I think that's the thing that I'm striving for in, in, in the work I do as much as possible is making people feel more connected to each other. Um, and, um, into purpose and to themselves. <laughs> if I look at it from the core of all the work I do is connections at the core of everything. Mm. Yeah. Everything you're describing is great, but also I would imagine, you know, as a person who's kind of trying to do something out of this on his own, um, you know, scary, it's frightening to kind of go on this journey. So when, when people are reaching out to you, I mean, I guess there's two questions, right? Number one, people realizing they need to change and finding you or, needing to be convinced that they should change. And you can't help anybody who doesn't want to help themselves. I get that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, people often don't need it, don't realize how much help they need until there's an intervention. <laughs> and so, you know, are there like leadership interventions kind of thing where people sit down and like, you know, not like the TV show necessarily where everyone writes a letter and they truck them off to rehab, but just something of, you know, we like you, we value you but you need to change some things. And this is a way that we hope that you can change and refocus. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know hundred percent what you mean. And I think as long as the intention is coming from the right place, then, um, then that's fine. I mean, if, if the intervention is what is being called upon and that does happen from time to time in my world and, and it's being received well by the person who's going to be intervened on. <laughs> right. Then, then that's fine. But the intention from the person who's at, who's looking to help has to be coming from a meaningful place or from a place of, of goodwill. So I've, you know, if an HR person reaches out to me and says, Hey, you know, I got this really great leader. We want them to do well. We really care deeply about them and we want to see them connect better with the people around them. We just need someone else to talk to around this. And so when they reach out to me, I, I'm like, yeah, let's. Let me, let me find out more. And also let me have a conversation with this person to see their willingness. Um, and then we go from there. But I think the biggest part for me to not to belabor the point too much is that for me to really find out if people want to do this type of work, the first thing I have to do is I have to be real when I get out there and I know it's social media, but I have to actually put messages that are real and if right. people like that. And that's great. Then they come to me and they want to talk. I think we should have a new TV show called Leadership Interventions. Um, I, I would, I would absolutely watch that. I love that. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. Yeah, I would watch that. But and also, if you look at the TV shows like Kitchen Nightmares or Restaurant Impossible or Bar Rescue, there always is an element of intervention. Yeah, always. You know, with with the people, and there's always family dynamics. I know it's you know it's dramatized because it's television, but you know it's someone who's at the heart of it, not a bad person or the TV show, the bear, if you've watched that, you oh, know, brilliant show. it's, yeah. it's I, mean, I mean, I'm in Alan on, they talk about Alan on, they talk about recovery work. Mm. And so it's just like, yep. I recognize everything that's going on from a, you know, adult child standpoint, you know? And so we see in these programs, the need for a leadership intervention. And so I yeah. think what you're describing is almost like a real thing here of, we need to kind of pull someone aside and be like, Hey, you know, not for nothing, but the way things are going for you right now is not sustainable and not good for you or anybody else in your life. Yeah. It mm. takes great courage. Yeah. I mean, and not, I know that sometimes that people feel like, Oh, that's part of my job, but you know, at the same time, it's hard to face somebody, you know, and say, you're not cutting the mustard, you know, you're not doing it. And there's something, you know, that needs to be fixed in you. You're flawed or something. It's not that it's not really the case. The case is that you could be doing so much better if you had a little bit of help. Right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, is that there's, I'm trying to think about like one of the, one of the things that that's, I think that's a, a challenge to that for leaders, which is, I think part of, you know, 
US culture is that we really lionize the kind of heroic individual, you know, mm-hmm. the CEO type, you know, and it, it's like uh, this really interesting idea that, you know, that is both not true because, you know, literally how can it, how can a, uh, you know, I mean, I'm saying also think like, I'm thinking of like Elon Musk, right? We lie on these, these billionaire CEOs um, that they have a, some interesting ideas, but really like a lot of their work, like any kind of capital requires a ton of labor behind that and ideas yeah. and, and building on the shoulders of giants. And so it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like we need to kind of develop new leadership models or, or, you know, prioritize or celebrate the leaders that, uh, connect and communicate and sort of build yeah. broader resilience, you know, amongst their communities versus just saying, Oh, look, it's the lone individual, you know, which is this fake idea that like it filtered into like, this is why we love superhero movies. It's the same thing. Yeah. Right? Um, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a fiction. Like sustainable leadership, um, yeah. as opposed to just a, um, just leadership that gets like an immediate hit of results that everyone's like, Whoa, look at that. But then, mm-hmm. and then doesn't really kind of last and create um, a legacy that can be seen over years and years and years. And I, you know, one of the things that um, not to use another term, but I'll, I'll put it out there because it's something that really lights me up is this, I call it grounded leadership, a leader mm. who leads with intention, who comes to a place of calmness and can see that by me showing up in a certain way, I can radiate this sense of purposefulness to other people, but also allowing that to be um, a place for, you know, uh, other people not to feel as though they're always under the gun, under pressure. You know, they're, they're, they're the person who's going to be able to create this um, sense of uh, we're going to get through this together. Um, but, but we're not going to be in a panic to get there. Mm. One of the things, you know, on this point, one of the people that I really admire that I've learned a lot more about in the last three years or so is, um, Admiral Chester Nimitz. And it was interesting. So he led the Pacific, uh, forces in World War II. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the first thing he, he was the person who was put in charge of the Pacific after Pearl Harbor. And one of the first things he did when he got to Pearl Harbor was um, essentially fire no one. Mm. He, he brought them all in and he was essentially saying, hey, I know you're all talented. I know you all can do the job that you're going to be asked to do. And I have my full faith and confidence in you. Mm. And he was very quiet and he was very calm and he didn't ra- typically raise his voice. And he, yield- he welcomed all opinions, but you knew who was in charge. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like this very early, you know, it's a very early model. He's not without his flaws, but very, very early model of him as a, you know, leader who was very grounded in, in his Absolutely. people and, yeah. and what they were trying to do. And they didn't fear failure because they knew that he had their back, even though the consequences of failure could be catastrophic in terms of life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love that. It's such a great example. Uh, and I, I love that you share this because these are the types of leaders you look back and you say like, wow, how did they do that? How do they remain so in the moment, so present and yet so connected to what was going on, um, uh, to, you know, where they're going and where they're, where they've been. Um, and the kicker though, is going back to Adam's point is he wasn't as not as acknowledged as MacArthur, who was yeah. not that. Because MacArthur self-promoted early form of social media, right? He self-promoted, he aggrandized, he staged photo ops, you know, he was very much this I'm individually special kind of thing versus Nimitz's grounded leadership kind of thing. And people remember MacArthur as a character, as a person, just on the surface more than they remember Nimitz, which is kind of depressing. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're in it just for the fame, then, uh, then maybe, you know, it's not the right game to be in. Uh, so you have to do it for the right reasons. And right. That's where you know, we need to reframe what, uh, what it means to be making an impact, um, in the world. Hmm. I think that's a great point. Um, I mean, it seems like so much of this too is, 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 uh, like the, the conversation is like, there's the hinge of connections and the hinge, I think, of reframing like so much of the the work that we're already doing. 
Um, I'm going to ask, uh, I, I, got, I have kind of a content question in my mind now, you know, you do podcast work, you do blog, you do blogs, um, you do TED talks, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so just uh, thinking about this in terms of, um, if I can sound like a corporatist for a second, like your content strategy, um, I'm curious as this process of how, how do we think about putting out things in the world, talks, podcasts, blog posts, uh, that help bring these themes to life. You know, I'm looking, for example, you, you know, you have one that you did a few days ago that was on, uh, the power of artful connection and thinking about art and, and connectivity. Yes. So, um, I'm just, I'm just curious about this, this thought of, is it kind of, I go out in the world, I'm inspired by stuff and I come back and reflect and write or like, how does, how does your, your process work in, in this way? Yeah. I wish it was a little more, uh, I would say, <laughs> um, you know, concerted effort, but I, I go with what inspires me and what's, what I feel like is going to, um, create a feeling in someone else. Um, and I try not to be, um, I'm very humble in my approach, but even though people see, may see a lot of content out there, but the reality is I want, I want to make sure I spark some kind of inspiration in other people. And that's the only real goal in my content strategy is if it's not doing something for me, then I'm, I'm assuming that it's not going to do anything for anyone else. So, mm. um, my strategy is just that, um, you know, you'll see a lot of themes of art and, um, in different, different fields coming together because that's what lights me up. I'm an artist at heart. Um, and that's, bleeds into everything I do. Um, and so therefore, you know, if you don't like that, then you might not like who I am. <laughs> and that's okay. What kind of art? Well, I like to do glass blowing and, oh, cool. um, yeah, I, so when I was a kid, I was, I was really into art and it was uh, potentially going to become an architect. But then what happened was I had these moments, um, in my early childhood when people would say, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? Right. You know, how are you going to make money? And so I went pre-med. Of course, mm-hmm. being a child of immigrants. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I eventually realized that I didn't want to cut people open. So I uh, decided to shift into business and then spent most, most of my career working in biotech. So mm-hmm. it was nice to be able to be in the science and business field of biotech. But um, now I feel like my world has collided in many ways where I'm able to marry up the art of conversations um, and having conversations with a lot of biotech and tech leaders, which is fantastic. But really for me, I feel like I can play in many fields now. How does one discover an affinity for glass blowing? Because it's not as if there's a ton of like, you know, glass blowing workshops at area art institutes. I mean, it's a, you know, you, you need some some equipment for glass glass blowing. So how does one find that out about oneself? Well, first of all, there's a, a glass shop just near me. I'm, I live near, um, I'm in, in Canton, um, Massachusetts, right. and Norwood has a shop that I go to from time to time. Um, but anyways, long story short, what I, um, I've always just been fascinated by glass and glass has been around since like, you know, since the beginning of time, you know, and it's been just something that I'm curious about. And I wanted to just kind of give it a try and to see what it feels like to be able to play with glass and not, you know, <laughs> it sounds kind of funny when I say that, but to actually get in there and, and see it being molded. And what's interesting about, about working with art, you know, with glass is that um, you don't know how it's going to turn out until it's done. Mm. Um, because when it's hot, you don't know what it's really going to look like. Um, it's a really interesting um, process and it's very fragile. So the, the, the chance of it breaking along the way, it's really, uh, you know, it's interesting medium to play with. You have to get so, too psychoanalytic here, but compare it to something like sculpture or something like yeah. drawing or painting or something like wheel throwing. You can see what it's going to look like along the way and you can make you know, micro or adjustments to it as it's going. Yeah. But as you said, with glass blowing, it's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith. You have to be like, okay, I think this is where you have to use your intuition and kind of see, you know, where I'm sure, you know, the glass blowing experts out there are probably like, yeah, dude, I know what I'm doing. And they're just like, you know, we'll hear from them. No, we won't. (laughs) (laughs) We will now, but I think it's fascinating, right? That you know, choosing a medium that is a leap of faith. And, mm. you know, people will talk about pushing paint around or mm. wrestling with the clay or letting the, you know, the image of the figure emerge from marble or whatever, or the armature. But with glass blowing, I said, like, you know, you can only take it to a certain point and then it's 
fingers crossed, you know, yeah. hope it comes out okay. And people are like yeah. the same way, right? You can like, you can only take them to a certain point and at a certain level, how things like having kids, how they end up. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and in the fragility of it all. I mean, right. about, you have to make sure that, that you, there's extreme heat and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of handling with care, but at the same time, you know, relationships break and you have to be able to repair them. Um, so I think there's a lot going on. There are a lot of metaphors to be happen, happening. Yeah. It's a um, metaphor so. show. It's a deep, deep metaphor show here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm here for it. I, I like it. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious you just to, to think about this. Um, biotech is also a really interesting direction um, with which to go. I mean, is, is there some connection to the, well, I'm curious, what, what kind of biotech were you working in? And, the, and then is there a relationship between, I don't know, biological thinking and, and uh, both art and the, the idea of making? Yeah. So I worked for a number of years in the rare disease um, space. So I worked mm. on some, um, but particularly I worked on cystic fibrosis. I worked on one of the first therapies that was game changer in cystic fibrosis at the company called Vertex mm. Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And even before that, I worked at Genzyme, uh-huh. uh, which was a company I worked for eight years with. Um, one of the, the leaders that really inspired me a lot is Henry, Henry Tamir. Henry Tamir has passed away. Um, back in 2017, but he was a leader who really uh, changed the game in terms of how rare disease is is treated. Um, and I really, for me, um, that was, you know, I wasn't in the lab, but I was more in the business side on the finance and strategy side of the game. But mm. for me, it was just the chance to see how the little things we do make an impact on patients. We always put patients first. And I got involved in really understanding the clinical trial process and understanding, you know, how, how things are done on all different aspects. So for me, it was just a great experience to be able to be part of that world. And along the way, I got a chance to meet some of the patients who were affected by some of the therapies that I, I was, I had a hand in playing, you know, to, to see it developed. For example, um, I worked on a, on a therapy called hereditary angioedema. Um, HAE for short. And, um, you know, some of these patients, you hear them talk about how they struggle every day just staying alive because they could have an, a flare up and their life could, could they, they could be done. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, hearing them say how grateful they are that we're working on a treatment for this, it just changes the way you look at life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's super powerful. That, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, just that, like the, and recognizing too, just the capacity that we have as a collective, right. Um, to come mm-hmm. together and build knowledge around, uh, you know, how the human body works, how, how biological system works. And then like, what can we do to create treatments and systems around that to respond, I think is, is really powerful. So it's a, a field I greatly admire, um, yeah. uh, as well. So that, that, that's, that's cool. And, and it's like, you can, I can see a throughput and a thread line in, in terms of your thinking and your own pathway here too. And, and also like, how do we then find the, the deeper connecting points between, um, you know, have we identified a problem or not? And then how do we, uh, you know, find our way through that through building connections, mm-hmm. you know, with, with what other, what other kind of lifeboats might be there, whether it's a pharmaceutical or a, a human, a humaceutical, we're going to coin that term. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> humaceutical. Humaceutical, yeah. like a human yeah. pharmaceutical. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we made a word. So we have young yin for those keeping score at home. We have young yin. We have unending metaphors, and now humanceuticals. Yeah, young yin is a real term, like Carl Jung. That's I understand, term. but I'm saying, yeah. like you know, the the uh, the highfalutin <laughs> language. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm on, I'm on a, my high horse, my language high horse. We today, absolutely I are. Just, I know. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> shaming you. You're bringing your authentic self to the podcast. Yeah, it's, my, it's my authentic self, right? Right. A lot of words that I can't, I can't spell. <laughs> I did want to ask you, uh, Tony, about your book, which is Climb the Right Mountain. Um, and how do I know if I'm climbing the right mountain? And is there a right mountain? And is, is descending um, more perilous than climbing up? I actually like to like hike and do mountains. So it got me thinking more metaphors about yeah. climbing, you know, out of the vistas that appear, how do I choose the right one? And getting to the top is only halfway. You still have to get back down. Yeah, well, it's a good question. I really haven't thought about the uh, the getting down part, but more about, um, you know, the 
make sure you're choosing when you're choosing the path up, um, you know, know that you don't necessarily have to, um, to always, um, finish that mountain. You know, you can pause along the way and say, Hey, is this really the right path? You know, check in with why did I start ascending in the first place? You know, is this still the thing that I want to continue to come to accomplish? And I, you know, with, uh, mountain climbing, obviously we're talking about the, you know, career paths in life, but the idea that like, you know, sometimes we have good intentions and we have the thought, that this is what I want, but sometimes we have to pause, take in the landscape and say, okay, is this really the place right. that I want to be? And I guess when I think about the, the ascent, I mean, the descent, um, you know, the thought would be that no, when we're descending, it's just really about how can I make sure that I'm enjoying the the, the time on the way down as well. You know, if um, if I had a really great journey up, am I appreciating and, and integrating all the lessons I've learned on the way to the top? And how can I utilize them to get to that next place that I want to go? That's awesome. And I, I have some more metaphor thoughts, if I can, since we're doing like all the metaphors. You know, yeah. there is a thing in mountain climbing or mountaineering called summit fever, which yeah. is, you know... I got to get to the top no matter what. The people who have died close to or coming down from Everest because they hit the summit when they should have turned back earlier because the time window for summiting um, had gone away. Mm. And so the idea of summit fever is I have to get to the top no matter what. And you can think about professionally, if I try to get to the top no matter what, the position it puts you in personally, but also the position it puts other ones in your life in as well. And so this notion of professional summit fever you know, why do we, why do we start doing this in the first place? The other thing I was thinking, I got two more metaphors for that. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about was if you're doing big mountains, you know, yeah. usually you have Sherpas, you have, you know, a guide service, you have, uh, you, no one climbs a mountain that size by themselves. You got it. You got it, it takes everybody to do it. And the third thing this is, it gets just really good from my John Krakauer's book into thin air when he was summiting um, Everest as part of this party, when he was writing a story about, you know, you know, mountaineering guy companies. The one thing that he talked about was I made sure to notice everything along the way to the summit so that when it was a whiteout and he had to get back down, he knew where he was going and he knew where he had been, hmm. you know? So when you're going up to the top, just don't focus on the trail, focus on everything around you. So you know where you've been. So you can al- always acknowledge and be familiar with where those things are along the way. Brilliant. I mean, I'll just kind of add to that to say, which is, you know, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Yeah. You know, the, if you don't like who you're becoming along that path, then you're, you're too focused on the summit. Yeah. And um, if you're not enjoying the, the, the path, even the, the hard parts, then then maybe you're on the wrong path. I was doing, um, I would go to Lake Placid twice a year and I was doing a few peaks, short peaks with my oldest daughter. And typically I would go out by myself and do higher peaks. And it was interesting, the experience, how richer the experience was doing it with my daughter, doing it by myself. No, I'm just joking. Doing it with my daughter. She really held me back, Tony. I mean, I could have gone so much faster <laughs> if it wasn't for her interference and just, no, I'm joking. You know, the idea of sharing it with somebody, sharing the journey helping someone else achieve something that they weren't sure they could accomplish. I mean, all those things Mm. made that experience of summiting, of being on the path much richer and much more fulfilled than just if I would have done a peak by myself that was much higher. Yeah. Brilliant. Hmm. I love it. I mean, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> well, we can. I mean, we got plenty. Of, I got nothing. I have nothing going on. Adam, are you free? We can keep going. Well, more metaphors. Sure. I got to run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, got to run. I got to run. No, I'll, I'll go, okay. no, this, this has been great, Tony. We, uh, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And and um, and what I, I'm taking away from this conversation, and I I really enjoyed too, is that we um, got to take the the time and the space to kind of really explore some 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 interconnectivity, as it were. Um, and so I, I appreciate you you helping us think through some of these rabbit holes. But I think some of the, the key areas that like we do actually needed to spend more time on uh, is is you know me for the we. Uh, you know, and me in service of the we, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's, it's also just reminds me, it's the last metaphor I'll say is that it, it's, it's kind of reminds me of the, the airplane mask, right? You put, you put your mask on first and then you can, then you can put other people's on. Um, and, and then we can all breathe a little bit easier, I hope, but, but yeah. thank you. 
Awesome. Good job laying the plane, Adam. See what I did there? You said oxygen mm. mass and I said plane. See? Yeah, that was, that was okay, nice. forget it. Doesn't that matter. Deep. Deep. I'll edit that out. It does, it's okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tony, for your time. This has been a great conversation. And uh, we'll have all the information on how to get in touch with Tony in our show notes. So thanks, Tony. Thank you so much. This is brilliant. I really enjoyed our conversations. We'd like to thank Tony Martinetti, leadership coach and consultant, as well as child of immigrants and philosophical thinker for coming on Experience by Design and exploring how to create connection to workplaces through thoughtful leadership. You can see more about his work in our show notes. And as always, we want to hear from you. You know, in your workplace, have you been affected by burnout or working with a tough manager? Imagine many of us have. Uh, But what kind of leadership traits would you like to see, either in yourself or in folks that you work with? And importantly, have you ever tried glass blowing? Shoot us a message over at feedbackofexperiencexdesign.com or hop in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. I had a student one time do an ethnography on glass blowing. Nice. Yeah, it was really interesting. uh, Did it shatter your expectations? It did shatter my expectations, but her work was a little transparent. Uh, less, hey, yeah. see what we did there. Nailed so we, we we appreciate you coming for this kind of humor and content to experience by design because you're only going to get it here, thankfully. And we're mm-hmm. always welcome to have you along for the ride. If you have an idea for a new guest, a new topic, or you're a company that would like to partner with Experience by Design, make sure you send us an email at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. If you want to support our efforts financially, which is always appreciated, you could buy us a coffee at our website through our buy us a coffee link at experiencexdesign.com. And as always, make sure you follow us on all of our Experience by Design channels, including our new YouTube webpage, where you can sit and watch Experience by Design. You won't see us. You just see the recording. Yeah, but hey, we're there with you on YouTube, which is, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? You can always check us out there and with many new exciting things to come up for the 2024 year. So with that, we will see you next time here on Experience by Design.